If you would please um, turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 1. I would encourage you tonight, if we have the words up on the screen where you can follow along uh, for this, for the uh, Titus 1 through 4, but uh, I would encourage you, if you have your Bibles with you, you have it on your phone, then, then keep it open to Titus, because we're going to reference uh, the book of Titus um, um, in, in multiple places. Um, you guys know me, I like to preach through a whole book, um, so we're going to introduce um, the book of Titus tonight and bounce around a little bit before we settle in on this passage that we'll read here from Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. So let's read it together. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Let's go to him in prayer. Father God, we are your humble children, and we ask, Lord, that you would speak to us from your word, that you would reveal Christ to us, and that we would leave from this place full and worshiping and made more like him. It's in his name that we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Okay, so uh, Matt referenced a moment ago from, from Matthew 5 as he gave the charge to Leah, gave her the candle, uh, told her to let her light shine. And, and that's a reference from, from Matthew 5, which you have up on the screen, where Jesus says to us, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So we have this command to shine for God's glory, but we know that this light is not inherent in us. Otherwise, we would not need to be saved, right? Um, but So then what is the source of this light? What is the power of it? Well, the short answer is the Holy Spirit, amen? That um, being justified, being completely forgiven and made righteous in God's sight, we are fit for the Holy Spirit of God to come and indwell us. And how astounding is that? Uh, and we celebrate the Holy Spirit indwelling uh, Leah uh, tonight. Um, but what is it? do we have a role and, and a responsibility in, in cultivating this light, in, in seeking the filling of the Spirit? Uh, what is our responsibility in growing in godliness and in good works? Uh, we, we cannot produce it on our own, only in partnership with the living God. And yes, it is a partnership. Um, well, the, the book of Titus, I believe, helps to answer that question tonight. What is our role and responsibility in, in, uh, in letting our, our light shine? If the light, you know. um, and to sum up the message to Titus, I would say it is about pursuing godliness by the power of the gospel. Pursuing godliness by the power of the gospel. Godliness is not inherent in us. It wasn't inherent to, to Paul's hearers as he wrote this, this letter, as we all have a sin nature. And it wasn't inherent in Titus's culture as he, he lived on the island of the Greek island of Crete. Uh, this is what, if you look at chapter 1, verse 12, uh, this is what one of their own, one of their own poets, named, uh, probably a guy named Epimenides, said about his own people, the Cretans. He said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And then Paul says, this testimony is true. <laughs> He's right. 
Now, does this sound familiar? As he describes the Cretan culture, does it not sound like our culture as well? I mean, our being liars. Our, guys, I don't know if you've paid attention, but our government representatives lie all the time. And we just let them. We, we take it. We, we go along with it. So many of us do. But also, let's not throw all the shade on them. They are our representatives. Okay? Uh, we, we are a, li- a people of lies. Um, as well, being evil beasts, beastly, animalistic, following what feels good. I mean, that's the spirit of the age is, is you do you, you do what feels good. And lazy gluttons, people who, who don't want to work, who are self-indulgent, uh, we have to be honest and confess that we are guilty of participating in all of these sinful patterns ourselves. I was um, talking with, with a brother uh, a year ago about how his son was doing at his new job, and um, he said he's doing great, but he really, all he really needs to do is, someone his age, all he really needs to do these days is just show up and work hard, and he immediately sets himself apart. And, um, and we could say such things about many aspects of, of our culture, that if you simply live a normal, quiet life, you stand out. That if you work hard with integrity, if seeking to serve others, not just to get ahead, you stand out. Dads, these days, if you stick around and you love your kids and you raise them up to, to know the Lord, uh, you teach them, you lovingly discipline them, you stand out. Couples, if you wait until marriage to consummate the marriage, praise God, you, you stand out. Um, if you can engage in a debate with someone else without name-calling and, and getting all emotional, you stand out. And I could go on and on and on. And so as we, we talk about living a, a normal life, a, a normal quiet life, how that stands out more and more, you know, I'm reminded of something that Tim asked all the time. It's like, was, was Jesus a revolutionary? Would you say he was a revolutionary? No, Jesus was completely normal. But he was so normal, and we're so messed up that he, that he seems revolutionary to our eyes. Uh, if we live quiet lives of godliness, we will stand out. And this creates opportunities for the gospel. As the darkness deepens, and as our light, as we, as we you know, we're, we're faced with this constant impasse. Am I going to go along with the culture, go along with the darkness, or am I going to resist that and lean into the Lord uh, and devote myself further to him. This, th- when we're faced with things like that, it, it has the opportunity of devoting us further to the Lord, and that makes our light shine even brighter, and so may it be. And so culturally speaking, uh, this letter to Titus is a timely word for us as well. Uh, again, the message being pursuing godliness by the power of the gospel. We'll, re- we'll return to that at the end um, but I'll go ahead and tell you that it is, it is by the power of the gospel. It is, godliness is not something inherent in, to us that we just simply grit our teeth and, and, and grind out. Um, no, godliness develops according to 2 Corinthians 3.18 that as we behold Jesus, as we behold the glory of the Lord uh, in the face of Jesus Christ, we are transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And that is why we need the gospel all the time. Because as we dwell on the gospel, we see who God is. There's so many things about the Lord that are revealed so clearly in the gospel. Uh, we, we see, um, we see um, you know, God's justice on display, that he is a, a, a God of holiness and justice, and he cannot tolerate sin. Sin must be punished. 
that, that God is a, a righteous God. Jesus lived a perfect, obedient, righteous life. And we see God's mercy in that he poured out his wrath on Jesus so that we could be pardoned, we could be forgiven. And we see his power on display, raising Christ from the dead on the third day because he did not deserve to die. And we see his wisdom in all of that because it looked like Christ was defeated, did it not? Could you imagine being the disciples on Saturday? But we see God's wisdom in that, that apparent defeat was actually a victory. And so... Um, as we dwell in the gospel, we come to know God. And in coming to know him, we become godly more and more. We become more and more like him. And in so doing, we make him known. We make him known by our lives. And so uh, to define godliness to you very quickly, we'll come back to this and dwell on this at the end. But I, to define it quickly, godliness is devotion to God in action. Get that definition from Jerry Bridges. I'll explain to you why. I think it's a spot-on definition in a moment, but devotion to God in action. And that, I believe, is a theme of, of this book, is pursuing godliness. So let's, let me just give you a quick overview of the book of Titus, as we'll be in it for the next uh, seven weeks, I believe it is, up until Thanksgiving. Uh, but you have, an, um, you have the outline on, on, your, on your bulletin. Feel free to keep that with you. Test it. See if it, what you think of it. Uh, but let's run through it here. In, in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, the first section, we have greetings from Paul, who we'll see is a model of godliness and who proclaims the gospel. Uh, in the way that they wrote letters back then, it was so helpful because they would say who it's from at the beginning. You have to read the whole letter and then see who it's signed by at the end. He goes ahead and he says it's, it's from him. And in this greeting, he describes um, what he's about, what he's committed to, uh, and he's, we learn that he's writing to Titus, telling him, first of all, to be appointing godly elders who shepherd others in godliness. And the elders must be godly men because they are to model what godliness looks like to the congregation. They are blameless. That does not mean they are without sin, amen? Uh, but they are above reproach. They have a good reputation, including a reputation for holding fast to God's word, teaching the flock from God's word, as well as rebuking, on the flip side, uh, rebuking from God's word when the situation calls for it. And the situation called for it here in Crete because they, uh, like so many letters in the New Testament, had, were uh, struggling with false teaching. Uh, if you'll give us a run through that outline with us, uh, please. Um, but in uh, verses 10 through 16, uh, they had to, the elders are called to, uh, to rebuke rebuke ungodly false teachers because of the ungodliness that their false teaching produces. They must be rebuked because they have to be stopped. Their teaching is not neutral. It is producing ungodliness uh, because all false teaching, when you get right down to it, is focused on the self. And as it teaches you to focus on yourself, even when the message is be good, be moral, have good character, that apart from Christ only puffs a man up. It only makes him proud when he's, when he's doing well or despairing when he's not. And even then, he's full of himself, full of, of self-pity. And, and um, you, you see it all the time where, where people who are proud of, of how good they are, they're so quick to gossip over how bad others are. And you see all, all sorts of bite, bite, back, backbiting and competition and ungodliness in that way. Uh, and so that has to be rebuked because it produces ungodliness. Then in chapter 2, um, 
Titus is commanded to teach, to teach godliness according to godliness in relationships according to gender, age, and station. And I find it beautiful that it says it has to be taught. It's not something that we, we just get it right away. We're not expected to get it right away. We're to be trained in godliness. We, we, it is something that we learned, learn. And he addresses this, again, by gender, age, and station. Um, and, you know, newsflash, men and women are different. I don't know if you guys have noticed that. Uh, our culture seems to have a hard time with that. But um, we're designed differently. God has made us differently. We, we have equal dignity, value, and worth. Amen. Uh, but, we, but he has designed us differently, have different roles to play. And so he goes through and he addresses the older men. And then he addresses the older women. And he tells the older women to help train up the younger women. And then he, he addresses um, younger men. And he also addresses bond servants, which our equivalent today would be employees, um, best equivalent. And he gives an, another address to Titus as well. And um, just commending good works for each of them. Um, but what's very interesting is if you, as you get to the next section, verses 11 through 15, uh, that it, it talks about being zealous for good works. And as you look back up, you realize that the good works that he's talking about that are there's just ordinary, everyday good works. Um, you know, he, yes, we want to, to reach the unreached. We want to plant churches. We want to do these big works like that. But we're also called to be zealous for everyday, ordinary Good works, wiping noses, cleaning diapers. Um, these are good works I've been up to. Um, but, you know, wherever you're at, at your job, as, as dads, as moms, as, as students, as friends, like everyday, ordinary good works, Christ came to create as godly people for himself who are zealous for serving him in whatever way he calls us to. Uh, I want us to look at um, verses 11 through 15 because I feel like this is sort of the the central passage. There's one passage I would, I would point to, uh, to Titus to sum it all up or to say is the crooks of the, the whole thing. It's verses 11 through 14. So I want to look at that together. That is on your screen if you don't have your Bible open. Um, but it says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And he's told to declare these things, to exhort and rebuke with all authority and let no one disregard him in that message. But you see here in this passage, verses 11 through 14 of chapter 2, that we live between two appearings. We live between his first coming, his first appearing, and we are to look back at what he has already done, but then we, 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 we await the second appearing, his, his second coming. We look forward to that in this firm hope, this fixed expectation as to what is to come. And as we look back on what Christ has already done and look forward to his return, that that changes us. That has an effect on how we live here in this present age. And so godliness is cultivated by looking back and looking forward. More on that in, in a little bit. But again, with the book outline in chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, he reminds the people to be, uh, exhorts them in godliness, this time toward a lost world. Um, 
A similar pattern as, as chapter 2, but now oriented toward the world, uh, whereas before in chapter 2, it's uh, exhorting godliness in the church among one another. And then he starts to exhort them in godliness toward a lost world. And again, that is on, on the foundation of the gospel. In, in chapter 3, verses 4 through 8, he comes back to the gospel, and he tells Titus to insist on this, that we were formerly ungodly, yet made godly by Christ appearing. Um, we are to remember who we once were, that we have been saved by grace, and that gives us compassion toward the loss. Uh, again, focusing on his appearing, uh, thinking, thinking on what he has already done and looking forward to what he will do. Uh, verses 9 through 11 of chapter 3, told to avoid and warn false teaching, which is unprofitable for a godliness. Um, he says some of this stuff, this false teaching, you don't even need to get tangled into it. You just need to not even give that attention. Uh, but other times, you, people need warning that they might stop. And then he closes the book, verses 12 through 15, with some final instructions, namely exhorting the flock to learn godliness, to learn godliness. And we'll come back there as well. I would encourage you to be good Bereans. You know, the Bereans in, in, in Acts, they, um, they didn't just take what Paul said at face value, they went and searched the scriptures to see if it was right. So take this outline and search the scriptures and be good Bereans over that uh, and, and see if this holds up. But I, I hope that is helpful to you as we go through the book of Titus. So what is godliness and how do we pursue it? Well, we, first of all, let's address how we may typically think of godliness. We may typically think of it as merely Christian character. But remember, if it's only about character, then that's no different from simple moralism, and you don't need Christ for that. And that's what these false teachers in Crete were teaching, was a brand of moralism. These were the Judaizers who were saying that you had to keep the law, uh, Jesus plus the law, in order to be right with God, to be good with God. And, um, and they were, in, in chapter 1, verse 14, it says they were teaching the commands of people, things that, that the Pharisees taught, such as, you need to ceremoniously, ceremonially cleanse your hands before eating. It wasn't just about hand washing, it was about being holy. And that was not something that God had commanded in the scriptures. That was something that they had added. And they felt like if they kept these added rules, then that made them righteous. No, godliness is not first about character or behavior. It is about attitude. It is about the heart, about what your heart is committed to which is why I think uh, Jerry Bridges is right when he defines godliness as first and foremost as devotion to God. Devotion to God. And we see um, Paul, I said Paul was a model of godliness. Look at chapter 1, verse 1, the, the third word there. It says, Paul, a servant of God. A servant of God. Your translation may say a slave of God. Paul's entire will was completely bowed to the Lord Christ. He was completely surrendered unto him. And his, his role of service was as an apostle. The apostles were those who had witnessed, they had, they had witnessed the resurrected Christ and been taught by him. Um, and we don't have, the apostles are all dead. So you may see some people today who call themselves apostles. That is not what the scripture teaches, okay? 
what role do the apostles have today? The Word. The apostles have given us the Word. As um, Tim quoted to us recently, you may remember from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The apostles, you know, while there are no active apostles today, the apostles are most certainly active, but they are active through God's word. So godliness being devotion to God, having that attitude of my entire will is submitted to him, I'm devoted to him, uh, and, but secondly, devotion to God in action. Devotion to God in action. Again, back at uh, chapter 2, verse 14, it says that Christ came to redeem us from lawlessness, to, to buy us back from living however we wanted, and to purify a people for himself, for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Christ redeemed us, bought us, made us his, his own that we might be a people who are zealous for doing good works with him. Um, when we are devoted to God, we will inevitably do what pleases God. And in doing what pleases God, what is beautiful about it is it serves to devote us further to God. If I share the gospel with someone, what am I going over in my head? I'm thinking about the gospel. And, that, and even just that, that choice not to fear man but to fear God that devotes me further to him. And so godliness is something that is practiced. It is something that is in action. And he, he says that he came to purify people for his own possession who are zealous. Zealous meaning the, the, word, the word picture here is boiling over, who are burning with zeal, who are eager to serve the Lord. Um, so it starts with that attitude, but it expresses itself in action. As well, it is... Um, Godliness is devotion to God for the sake of others, for the sake of others. We see again in our introduction, um, Paul is a model. It says that he, he was serving them for three reasons. He was serving them for the sake of the faith of God's elect. He was serving them for their knowledge of the truth which accords or produces godliness and to give them hope in, in eternal life. It, his service was first and foremost an act of worship unto the Lord, but then sacrifice for the sake of others. As he's proclaiming the gospel and seeing the elect being saved, he's teaching the truth and seeing that produce godliness, and he's giving us hope in eternal life. So, act of worship unto God, but for, for the benefit of others. And it is, godliness is devotion to God that makes God known. It makes God known. If you have your Bibles open, you can look at um, chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. As he says there that bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Godliness adorns the gospel. On the flip side, ungodliness reviles the gospel. Uh, look, look up chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. It says this, Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, 
that the word of God may not be reviled. So not pursuing godliness can give the gospel a bad reputation. But it's not enough just to witness to God by our actions. Our actions are like a silent film that requires narration. And so, uh, again, back to chapter 1, verse 3, Paul says that he preached the gospel. He, 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 he preached it. He was entrusted with this. And it says that um, the gospel was manifested in his word through his preaching. Isn't this remarkable that people come to know Jesus through our words? They see him in what we proclaim and share with him. But none of us have seen the risen Christ, right? But we know Jesus through the gospel being shared with us. Now, there is something supernatural and Holy Spirit attended about this. Um, you know, the Holy Spirit illuminates this for us and gives a picture uh, in our hearts of, of what Christ is like and what his, his death on the cross meant as we narrate to people how they've been created by God and, and have fallen short, um, but yet Christ came to live a sinless life in obedience and then died on the cross for what we deserve and rose up to eternal life. The, you know, it's, the Holy Spirit illuminates that to them, but not until the gospel is shared. And so Paul says he is sharing the gospel uh, to everyone, and the elect are responding. And so you may wonder, well, um, you know, why doesn't God just open the eyes of all the elect right away? Uh, what John Piper contends that God will not do that. He will not open the eyes of the elect until Christ is there in front of those eyes for those now open eyes to see and to behold and cherish and worship. And how is Christ put before someone but by the sharing of the gospel? And so what a remarkable privilege we have to, to introduce people to Jesus through the simple sharing of the gospel. He, he proclaimed Jesus to all um, and, and trusted that God would awaken those who were his. Fourthly, or I don't know what number one, fifthly, devotion to God that is learned and practiced. Uh, chapter 2 speaks again of teaching godliness, of the older women training the younger women. And then look at chapter 3, verse 14. He closes with this command, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. I don't know about you guys, but this is a real comfort to me, to know that God regards us as sons, as sons and daughters, as little ones who are growing up into the image of our elder brother Jesus, becoming like him who is just like our Father God. Failure then is not so crushing because we, we know it's not the end of the story. We know that our failures do not identify us, that God, um, his attitude towards us is no different when we fail. We have the security of always being sons. Um, you know, I speak boldly about us sharing the gospel and what a privilege that is, but you should know that's something I struggle with as well. Um, thankfully, the Lord helped me to have an opportunity to share with someone this week, and what a blessing that is, but uh, sometimes I, I struggle with fear of man, and I think this zeal, we can, we can examine ourselves um, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And when we lack zeal, 
That's a barometer for us. That tells us something. That means we need to return to the gospel. We've forgotten who he is and what he has done. But when we, are, uh, when we are, have worshipped the Lord, when we have meditated on that, then that produces zeal in us. And that's, again, why we need the gospel every day. Finally, um, godliness is devotion to God inspired and empowered by the gospel. Uh, we've looked at chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. I would encourage you in your own time to look at chapter 3, verses 3 through 8, and meditate on the gospel there. But we see the gospel here in these opening verses that we read together at the beginning. Um, and I want you to notice in that, um, these, the time markers that are in that. That he says he, he is a servant for our, the faith of God's elect. So it speaks of the beginning of our Christian life. And then he says he, he teaches the truth which accords or produces godliness. So he's speaking of the present age. And then he speaks of hope of eternal life. So again, looking forward to grace to come. And so we, we, we stand now between grace already and grace that is to come. You are God's elect, meaning that he chose you in Christ before the world even began that you should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined you, believer, for adoption to himself as a son through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will that gave him great pleasure, to the praise of his glorious grace, which with he has blessed us, which in the beloved. He promised before the ages began that you would be his. And I ask you a question, who did he promise this to? If this was before the ages began, who was that promise made to. Uh, this is a promise between, a covenant between the Holy Trinity to make a bride for Christ, a people for Christ the Son, to make us sons who are uh, like the Son unto the Father, to give us the Holy Spirit. It's what, um, again, theologians call the covenant of redemption. So that's grace already, but also grace to come. We have this fixed expectation. Hope is not merely... Um, wishful thinking, but this fixed expectation that God will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing and trusting Christ seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, says Romans 2. For God shows no partiality. But for glory, glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good and trusts in Christ. Knowing and believing these truths, grace already and grace to come, produces godliness in us. For why wouldn't you be eager to serve a God who has saved you and blessed you so? And so in closing, um, to each of us sitting here tonight, let me ask you first and foremost, do you know the Lord? How is your zeal for him? Are you burning to serve him? If you see that your zeal has waned, I would exhort you to seek the Lord. As Jeremiah promises, seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. Are you in need of an appearing, a fresh appearing of the Lord of grace in your life? Have you known his grace? 
In Hebrews 11.6, he says, Without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Seek the Lord. Seek the Lord. Search for him with all your heart. And he will make himself known to you. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I need you to reveal Christ to each one here. To renew our zeal for you. God, I am incapable in myself. Lord, I thank you, Jesus, that you came, that you died, that you, um, that you paid for all of our sins, and that you rose up to, to new life, to give us eternal life. Lord, may we enjoy that together and exhort one another in pursuing you all the more. In Jesus' name I pray, and all God's people said, amen.